are listening to Eco Justice Radio from the KPFK Los Angeles studio. A project of SoCal 350 Climate Action, our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge from Adventures in Waste, and you are listening to part six of a special seven-part series called The Plastic Play, Connecting the Dots Between Extraction and Equity and Pollution. Today's guest speakers are Claire Arkin, Communications Coordinator for Gaia Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, Marcus Erickson, Research Director and Co-Founder for Five Gyres Institute, and Kang Baloko, Community Sales and Logistics Manager for Athens Services. Claire Arkin is the Communications Coordinator at Gaia. Her work has been featured in such outlets as The Guardian, Resource Recycling, and the San Francisco Chronicle. She recently coordinated a global investigative project called Discarded that documented impacts of the global plastic waste trade on communities in Southeast Asia. Marcus Erickson is the research director and co-founder of Five Gyres Institute. As an environmental scientist publishing the first global estimate of plastic in the world's oceans and co-discovering microbeads in the Great Lakes, Marcus and his team use research to inform campaigns aimed at changing the systems that pollute the planet and communities. Kane Baloko is the Community Sales and Logistics Manager for Athens Services and has 13 years of experience in the waste and recycling industry. She currently markets commodities to domestic and international markets, finding homes for post-consumer plastic fiber, metal, glass, and other commodities. Over the past five episodes, we have investigated the extraction and creation of plastic and the effects on the community at the time of refinement and disposal. We dove into the many layers of health impacts associated from the plastic chemical plants to our everyday products, and we showcased how plastic bottled water in particular violates land, water, and indigenous rights. And while just using a reusable bottle cannot always provide accessible and equitable zero waste solutions. If you have not listened to the previous five Plastic Plague episodes, be sure to do so and subscribe to EcoJustice Radio. On today's episode, we explore how reduction, recycling, and technology can create a paradigm shift that is solution-oriented, equitable, and achievable. The recycling system in Western society experienced a blow when China banned the import of 24 types of recyclables, a ban that would in turn affect the capacity and influence the contamination acceptability of other nations. The recycling and waste industry can see this as an impediment, or they can embrace an opportune moment to update and shift practices in a way that yields long-term viability, recycling transparency, and supports the needs of the global market. However, not all new and emerging recycling alternatives are the same. Turning plastic into energy, fuel, or new resin can sound promising, but we must investigate solutions to ensure environmental and human health safety, longevity, scalability, and affordability. Today, we will discuss the differences between the effects of waste to energy, chemical recycling, plastic to fuel, and incineration. 
No matter the amount of recycling possibilities, the hard truth is that the system cannot absorb the amount of plastic production entering the market. In addition, the means to create and dispose of plastic is inequitable by nature. The solutions must ensure and prioritize reduction and reuse, and in a manner that does not compromise the environment or livelihood needs of this generation or future generations. So, wherein lies the responsibility of consumers, businesses, and manufacturers to participate in the necessary paradigm shift? How do we get to community-based solutions that are not solely focused on changing individual behavior, albeit an important piece to the overall shift? And how do reuse and recycling solutions weather issues and concerns related to virus spread and pandemics like COVID-19? We will cover this and more on installment six, The Paradigm Shift, Reduction, Recycling, and Technology of our Plastic Plague seven-part series. Thank you for tuning in. At the time of this recording due to COVID-19, we are all practicing physical distancing and calling in from our respective homes. Unfortunately, we are not in the normal KPFK Los Angeles studio, so please bear with us on any sound quality issues. It is my honor to welcome to the show our special guests joining us via phone, Claire Arkin of Gaia, Marcus Erickson of Five Gyres Institute, and Kang Baloko of Athens Services. Welcome everyone to Ecojustice Radio. Before we jump into our conversation around shifting our global and localized waste narrative, let's first talk about the organizations that you're with and their role in waste and reduction as, as well as the role that you play with those organizations. Marcus, you and your wife co-founded the Five Gyres Institute. What is their mission? How, how did this come about? And what is your story? Um, well, we did. So my, my wife, Anna Cummins, uh, the two of us, we began the organization back in 2009. Uh, and then 2010, we began uh, sailing around the world. And at, at that time, you know, look, if you look back 10 years ago, the big un, unanswered questions were, what are these garbage patches? Where are they? How many of them are there? How much trash is in them? What's your ecological impact? What do you do about it? So we set out to answer some of those questions. So over the, the first five years, we sailed to all five, each of the five subtropical gyres, published papers on the South Pacific, the global estimate we did in 2015, looking at how much trash is in the world's oceans, answered some basic, basic questions. And we found plastic microbeads in Great Lakes, and that really defined what we do. We do research, we publish in peer-reviewed journals, and we use that, that information as the foundation for campaigns to drive preventative change. And that, in a nutshell, is our mission, science to drive solutions. And Claire, you are the communications coordinator for Gaia. On installment four of this same series, we were honored to interview Shibu Nair, India coordinator for Gaia. What, again, is the purpose of Gaia, and what has your role been implementing their efforts around the globe? Um, thanks so much, Jessica, for having me on. I'm really delighted to be here. So Gaia is a worldwide alliance of over 800 grassroots groups, uh, non-governmental organizations, and individuals in over 90 countries. And with our work, we really aim to catalyze a global shift towards environmental justice uh, by strengthening grassroots social movements that advance solutions to waste and pollution. And we also envision uh, a just zero-waste world built on the foundation of respect for ecological limits and community rights, and making sure that people are free from the burden of toxic pollution and, and that resources are sustainably conserved and not burned or dumped. And my role really is um, helping to 
elevate uh, the incredible stories of our members around the world that are doing this really transformative work on the ground to move us towards the solutions that we need. Thank you. And King, you work for Athens Services, one of the largest privately owned waste haulers in Southern California. Who is Athens Services? What, what do they do? And what do you do as their community sales and logistics manager? Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, Athens Services is one of the largest um, privately owned waste haulers. And as a commodity sales and logistics manager, I find domestic and international markets for the recyclable commodities that are produced as a result of processing and sorting. So some of the examples are fiber, metal, glass, and plastic. And aside from finding markets, I educate the operations team on market industry trends, pricing, new policies, quality control, as they pertain to the different countries we ship to. And I also work closely with buyers to ensure we are selling them a product that meets their quality standards. And for our listeners that may not be familiar with the terminology of a waste hauler, a waste hauler is a company that collects and trucks the recycling, the organics, and the landfill-bound material at your place of business or your apartment or curbside at your residence, and then they take that, as King said, and process it further to be recycled and composted. During our previous installments of the Plastic Plague series, we investigated how the effects of plastics and solutions relate to oil and gas extraction and refinement, the health impacts, and where it ends up once it is disposed, and all the underlying environmental and social justice issues that are also attached to that. Now we're at this place where we need to break down where we are currently with reduction, recycling, and technology, and how we need to shift into a new solution-oriented and equitable paradigm. Kang, I want to start with you so that we can set up the um, picture of what our, our waste system even looks like. Describe for us what a current Western society recycling system looks like on average. I know that waste haulers do differ and they process things differently. And how are things being sorted and where are they going? So the U.S. doesn't have a national recycling program, so some states recycle more than others. Um, California has a stronger recycling rate than other states, and that's due to the stricter laws that drive the state to meet certain recycling goals. Um, some of the regulations include mandatory commercial recycling, organic re organics recycling, and source reduction, etc. The goal is to have at least 75% of the waste recycled, reduced, or composted. And California also offers incentives through their California Redemption Program to encourage recycling of aluminum cans, bottles, and glass. Um, there are also redemption centers and recycling centers where you can take a recyclable that have been source separated. Most of them accept CRV containers and other scraps, uh, clean sorted fiber and various plastic grades and metal. Fiber for our listeners, fiber is not textiles, but it's paper, right? That's correct. Yes. So most municipalities here in California have adopted single stream recycling programs. And all that means is commodities are commingled, so glass, fiber, metal, and plastic, and later processed or sorted at a material recycling facility, also known as a MRF. And some MRFs are more sophisticated than others. At Athens, we have a MRF that heavily relies on human labor to posit positively sort out each commodity by grade. We process mixed solid waste at this facility, which is also known as a dirty MRF. 
We have another MRF that has state-of-the-art technology using optical sorting systems and robotics to separate material. At this facility, we process residential single stream and commercial recycling. After the material has been sorted, baled, and QC'd, it gets sold domestically or overseas. Factors that dictate where it gets sold to is price and movement. So, Athens Services has these material recovery facilities, they're, they're MRF, and they have a pretty high-tech facility. Do, do you find that the industry, in order to be able to get to the commodities that they need, are going to start heading in this direction where they are going to have to utilize that type of technology? Absolutely. High-tech means really expensive. So high-tech merch <laughs> invests millions of dollars in the late, latest technologies to help efficiently sort and process material. So we use a combination of automated equipment, people, and robotics to be able to process material faster, which also allows us to take in more tonnage. Um, in order for waste haulers to keep up with the changing requirements, which require the state to recycle more while also complying with global quality control demands, they will have to upgrade their systems, which also requires yeah. a heavy financial investment. Yeah, it, it really does. And there's this misnomer out there, too, that recycling is free because those that are sorting the waste are making money off the sale of the product. But that's not always the case. What, what are the true costs that go into recycling something? So if we didn't charge a fee to process material, the average commodity price would need to be at around 260 per ton given today's operating costs and disposal rates. Um, just to give you an example, MRP is worth about $60 a ton or less. So there are times where the price can drop to a negative value or no, no demands for certain grades. We have to charge a tipping fee in order to process material because the price of the commodities alone don't cover those costs. And what's the um, tipping fee? Tipping fee is what we charge trucks to dump material at our uh, facility, at our MRF. And are all the products that you're, like plastic specifically, because that's what we're talking about on this series, are all plastics able to be sorted and sold to market for recycling? And I think we all know that they're not. And, and why is that? So a common misconception is that every plastic can be or will be recycled, and that's just not the case. Um, there are many factors. So we have several different types of plastic. We have the thermoplastic and thermoset plastic, and thermoplastic are those that can be reheated and reshaped, whereas uh, thermoset plastics contain a combination of polymers that cross-link, and those cannot be recycled. And even those that fall under thermoplastics do not all get recycled. Some products contain layers of different grades of material. So if it's not made out of a single grade, the other grades contaminate the product. And remo removing the other layers would add an extra cost. That is why product design is also key. Um, it's also difficult to move a product that is dirty or heavily contaminated, and cleaning the material may cost more than the actual material is worth in comparison to using prime. Um, another thing to consider is that small plastic, uh, art partic plastic particles may not get picked up by our optical sorting systems. So post-consumer grades that are recovered at our MRVs and marketable are PET, HTPE, and PP number five. We also produce an MRP or mixed rigid pack, which is a mixture of PP and HTPE, and values for each grade can vary. 
for our listeners, so when we talk about PET, we're talking about number one, plastic water bottles and clamshells. When we talk about HDPE, high-density polyethylene, that's number twos. That's like your milk jugs and your detergent uh, containers. And number and PP, polypropylene, is number five. And that's like your yogurt cups and sometimes your clamshells, your to-go wear as well. And there's other products that are made out of those materials, uh, number one, number two, and number five, but they may not hold the same type of value as those um, other products in that category with that same chemical resin signature. Yes. So there are also other grades that can be recycled. However, they have they should be post-consumer or clean and source separated. Once it hits the waste stream, only the grades mentioned above are recovered. What's your opinion on foam? I, uh, foam is number six plastic, expanded polystyrene. Sometimes it's called styrofoam, but that's actually a brand. It's a, it's a hard product to collect and eventually recycle. What is, is that the case? Uh, what, what is your opinion being one of the largest recycling companies in Los, and Los Angeles County and Southern California? What about foam? So expanded polystyrene or EPS can be recycled if you have a proper equipment, such as a densifier. Um, a densifier turns the EPS into heavy blocks by removing the air and compressing the, uh, the material. It's a very small niche um, of people that can recycle this grade. And it would have to be very clean, pre-consumer, and generated at significant volumes. And also, you have to have the right equipment. As waste haulers, we have to manage large volumes of waste. EPS is 95% air, so it's not cost-effective to store or transport or run it through our system. It is often contaminated with food or beverage residue, and it's difficult to clean. So basically, the cost to recycle and manage EPS far exceeds the benefits of recycling it and making it a desirable grade. Last question in regards to recycling while we set this up. You know, with what's happened to the state of recycling, given the national sword and, and China not wanting to accept most recyclables due to their very stringent levels of contamination and other countries starting to follow suit on that as well, how do you see the role of recycling shifting and what needs to happen to shift into a new paradigm structure that is socially equitable and environmentally sustainable. So we definitely need to find more domestic outlets for our products to reduce the reliance of overseas markets that are constantly diminishing. This means investing in new technologies and innovations. Manufacturers can reduce the amount of packaging in the product, and we as consumers can do a part to reduce the amount of waste we generate by being more conscientious in the products that we use. Thank you. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to EcoJustice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. We are here with Claire Arkin from Gaia Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, Marcus Erickson of Five Gyres, and Kang Baloko of Athens Services, discussing the paradigm shift, reduction, recycling, and technology, which is part six of our seven-part series on the plastic plague. Claire, as the communications coordinator for Gaia, I, I want to talk about all these technologies around waste to energy and incineration and all of that. So we have so many technologies that are emerging as of late. Some of them are old, some are new. They're focusing on taking plastic waste and turning it into a resource that could either be energy, fuel, or new resin for products. And before we speak to what the efficiency, scalability, and applicability of these technologies are, let's go over some of the terms and set the record straight on what they mean. What is the difference between incineration, waste to energy, chemical recycling, 
and plastic to fuel are, and there might be others that I didn't even name, are they all the same? And if they're not all the same, why are they being used interchangeably sometimes? Yeah, that's a good question. And so it's a word soup. <laughs> um, so <laughs> incineration is where waste is burned in a facility without energy recovery, whereas waste to energy is an industry term um, that describes incineration where energy is recovered, although it's at a very high cost. So burning waste leads to, it's not like the, the waste just disappears, like poof, magic when you burn it. it. It turns into other forms of pollution, like slag and wastewater and really highly concentrated toxic ash um, that's really harmful to, to human health and the environment. And not to mention that once we burn these resources, they're really gone forever. And we just simply can't have that kind of linear model on a finite planet. So you mentioned chemical recycling and plastic to fuel. And, and these two terms are often used interchangeably, particularly by industry. However, uh, they are very different. Uh, chemical recycling purports to chemically break down plastic waste uh, versus in traditional mechanical uh, plastic recycling where the plastic is melted um, and then reformed into pellets. Um, so chemical recycling uh, it basically uh, goes through a process to turn it back into what, what uh, is claimed to be near virgin quality polymers or, or like like new plastic. So chemical recycling sounds really great, right? But it's, it's still not really proven to be efficient or scalable. Whereas plastic to fuel is a type of incineration where uh, plastic waste is turned into either synthetic fuel oil or gas, which is then burned. Um, so this is definitely not recycling. Uh, recycling means that the raw material is conserved and, and turned into a new product. So we don't have to extract more resources. And plastic to fuel is basically a really expensive and, and complicated way to extract and burn fossil fuels that, that really take just a brief vacation as a piece of single-use plastic that's used for five seconds. <laughs> yes. And um, when the national sword was starting to take hold, I, I'm also in the waste industry. I don't know if our listeners know that, but I've been in it for 15 years. And... I called up my friends in the industry and I expressed my concern that this change in the way that we were handling recycling and our loss of waste diversion would be the impetus needed for these large investors to encourage cities to get diversion through incineration and other expensive forms of waste energy technologies versus protecting the value of the resource and focusing on solutions of reduction and recycling. Have you found this to be the narrative that these companies might be coming in and saying, hey, we can get you to your diversion by having you invest in these really expensive systems? Have you, have you heard this? And in that explanation as well, please explain what waste diversion means for our listeners. Sure. So firstly, uh, waste diversion means how much of a city or county's waste is being uh, prevented from being incinerated or landfilled. So it means that composting or recycling waste is, is successfully counted towards the city's diversion rate. However, um, while this marker is really easy for cities to measure, it, it doesn't incentivize reducing the amount of waste we're creating in the first place, which is really what we need to be paying attention to doing right now. Um, so it's really the same problem with incineration as a response to national authority, as you mentioned. Um, China's ban really dealt a hard lesson to the big waste-generating countries around the world, like the U.S., um, that we really need to deal with our own garbage problems. 
And that doesn't mean that we create a whole other problem by burning our garbage and, and exposing the surrounding communities who live near these incinerators to the toxic impact of that decision and, and really shaving years off of their lives. At what's at the root of our waste problems? And, and how can we implement some smart policies and practices that reduce waste? And so that's really the, the important story that we want to tell. And, and unfortunately, we are seeing that... Um, some, some cities and counties have started to burn their recycling after national sword, but there's also been like a tremendous outcry from, from uh, you know, taxpayers who are saying, hey, hey, we don't want our recycling to be incinerated. Um, you know, let's find another solution. And, and that solution is really holding our, the producers for, who are responsible for this, this waste accountable um, and, and really encouraging them to change their um, business practices and their uh, delivery systems. And, and you alluded that these facilities, these types of technologies, they're expensive. And with them come the threat of human environmental costs. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So so basically, incinerators are, are very costly to build and maintain. Um, and... And when you burn waste, you you also are releasing all kinds of really dangerous toxins, like for example, um, heavy metals, uh, dioxins that are like forever chemicals, uh, other kinds of particulate matter that um, that have shown to have a really detrimental effect on our respiratory systems. I mean, in fact, right now, you know, with with the rise of this pandemic, we're seeing that communities that are exposed to this kind of toxic air pollution are more vulnerable to adverse health impacts, um, you know, or severity of the virus and, and even death from the virus. Um, so, so this is, you know, it's really throwing into sharp relief how um, these kinds of polluting industries are uh, significantly impacting people's health. And these impacts are not shared equally. So we recently released a report with the new school that showed that 80% of incinerators are located in environmental justice communities. That means uh, low-income communities or uh, or communities of color. And these are communities that already suffer from uh, environmental racism that are consistently dumped on. And and no community should be uh, sacrificed uh, in the name for this sort of relentless cycle of, of production and consumption. And I, I feel that you've answered this, but I, I kind of want to, bears repeating. I asked a similar question in a previous Plastic Plague installment. Some people who attest to a zero-waste philosophy feel incineration as a necessary part of our overall zero-waste solution to our waste solution. What is your opinion, and is that truly part of a zero-waste model? No, actually, uh, incineration undermines zero waste solutions. So I, I want to use a, a, a Native American proverb about um, the two wolves that, that exist inside us. There's that one wolf that represents all of our positive aspects and attributions, and, and then there's another that reflects all of our, our negative emotions and tendencies. Um, and the one that survives is the one that we feed. And I think it's really similar with a lot of things in our society, including how we approach our waste. So as, as we mentioned earlier, incinerators are incredibly costly. And then also once they've been built, they lock cities into these contracts that mandate that they provide a certain amount of waste to burn. Um, so these cities need to sort of feed the waste, sorry, feed the beast, so to speak. And so uh, not only are cities 
penalized for not providing enough waste to burn. So they're penalized for not being wasteful enough, which is so perverse. But it also then disincentivizes our efforts to reduce waste because we need to maintain a certain level of waste to keep the operation going. So there, there are incinerator-impacted communities across the country that are really fighting to starve the incinerator by seeding local zero-waste systems that, that build resilience and, and provide good jobs for the community. And I want to use um, an example in Baltimore um, where they've been plagued by the sturdy incinerator for decades. This week, city council unanimously passed resolutions adopting uh, a fair development plan for zero waste, which aims to build zero waste infrastructure that would make the incinerator obsolete. So there's really like an adverse relationship between zero waste systems and incinerators. And, and there are communities that are trying to, to decouple the two and to you know push cities towards a just and, and sustainable transition to zero waste. And and uh, Ecojustice Radio did a show, an interview with, uh, uh, based on having social equity as part uh, of a zero waste plan. And we interviewed the activists from Baltimore that were fighting against the Willibrator incinerator. So listeners, please go check out that episode as well. It's an amazing episode and we need to post some information on there as to how the plan was just recently passed. Marcus, the concept of reduction and intern reuse usually centers around this use of less material with a reuse focus on an idea that I call the switch out mentality. That's switching or replacing one disposable item for a reusable one, which definitely has its importance. In addition, when we talk about reduction, it's also important to expand this conversation and perspective so that the solutions are not singularly focused, but also based in community, community resiliency, which is a point of interest that I know that you have been focusing on lately. So before we dive deeper into that thought, why is reduction and reuse important and the first course of action in the hierarchy of reducing waste? And in addition, I, I think people understand it theoretically, but what are the human and environmental implications? That's a big question, but I think it's it, it's spot on. You know what we need to talk about are the the full life cycle of of things that we that we use in society, from extraction to 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 waste. You know how the waste gets managed. The full cost of of, of materials it has this carbon footprint. Um, and, and when we look at plastics, that's that's been uh, our focus for so many years. Looking at the cost of extraction, extraction, the true cost, which I know. Very well, personally, I was in the first Gulf War back in 1991. That was a resource war. So you can begin with, with, with those kinds of geopolitical battles to get, ex, to get access to the raw materials to make plastics. And then you've got all these extractive infrastructure that are in communities where they're causing health problems and other issues. You've got that at the beginning of, of the cost of materials. Then, as it flows through society, um, it's used for a very short duration and becomes waste. And, uh, and and Kang and Claire, you talked very eloquently about those true costs on the on the waste management side of things. So reducing reducing our consumption of materials reduces all those other costs on the front end and back end. And, and we when we think about community um, resilience, we think of shifting these systems, uh, localizing our systems. When you when you localize 
how, um, let's say, cups and bags are used within your community. Or if you look at your localized food production and how food gets is distributed, by becoming locally resilient, having those systems be very close to home, there are great companies like Vessel and, and GoCup and, and, and GoBox, which are, for example, Vessel, what they do, they have you know thousands of cups and the cup that can be reused in any restaurant, any coffee shop, and they're washed and reused. And they stay within the system with many, many restaurants and coffee shops participating. The same for reusable to-go wear. Um, everyone has their own reusable bag. So getting those, those, those single-use products out of the system, the, the, the true cost is so reduced for, for, for the, the beginning and the end of, the, of those materials. When we think of, of food production, I'm really interested in this because you know, what's happening now with, uh, with the pandemic, we really began to look at, at, um, at food security and, and where our food comes from, how heavily packaged these things are and how vulnerable we are when we depend on, on systems from far away to bring food to our doorstep. The more resilient we can become, and this, is, and this means things like community gardens, where you're growing food locally. I know here in Los Angeles, um, now uh, um, farmers markets can actually buy produce from individual residents who are growing food in their backyard. So we're seeing these systems emerge, and the food is a better quality. It doesn't come with any of the packaging, and you're, you're creating a local economy. You're providing jobs for the farmers market, um, if folks that, that transport it just locally within that system, and you know your neighbor, you know who's making the food. So you know, localizing these industries intentionally reduces the waste involved in the current system of, uh, and, and the vulnerabilities of a globalized system. So when I think of a reduction, I think of reducing the need for the throwaways, of course, because of the true cost, and then localizing to resilient systems we reduce the need for all the excess packaging involved to transport materials to your doorstep. And I think in that you've answered a lot of my questions because, you know, I, I was, you know, wanted to talk about what does successful reduction look like at a plastic production level, a plastic product level, because we have these options out there like bioplastics or PHA, which was marine degradable. There's things like take-back programs and extended producer responsibility where these are sort of on the producer's, uh, this is a producer responsibility tactic versus more of a community-oriented one. Um, what do you feel about that? Do you think that that responsibility needs to be on both? Are any of these topics uh, about take-back programs and extended producer responsibility and product types, do you think that these are solutions? Yes, uh, very much so. So, so I, I often say, you know, we want to move things from these, these, from technical materials to biodegradable materials as much as we can, because these, these natural cycles with biomaterials, they they can exist in, in in localized systems, and you don't need these hard to manage technical materials. And you know, bioplastics is a great example, but there's tons of misconceptions out there. Um, we did a study a, a few years ago called Better Alternatives Now, the ban list 2.0. And in that study, we, we took 20 bioplastic products, and these were the typical little corn cups you might see at eco events, uh, PLA, polylactic acid. Um, 
And the public has widely accepted that PLA is as a viable solution. The public kind of thinks that they, they're compostable in your backyard, which means biodegradable. Compostable in a, in a technical sense means it must go to an industrial composting facility. And most of your little corn cups, they don't go there. Uh, they end up being uh, waste, as Hunter uh, King knows very well. But if you look at other materials, there are some biomaterials that actually work. So in our study of 20, 20 different products, we had the corn cups, we had the PLA straws, PLA bags, um, lots of PLA products, and we had some PHA products. And I took all those products, 20, 20 uh, different items, and I put them under a, a fishing dock. Uh, actually, actually, Captain Charles Moore, the guy that found the, discovered the garbage patch back in 1999 in North Pacific, and let me put this box under his fishing dock for two years. And I found in two years, I pulled it up, and guess what? All the PLA, nothing happened. But that one PHA, which was a very thick beach toy, it was gone. Took the same set of 20 products, put it in my backyard under about one inch of soil, and the same thing. The PLA was there. The PHA was crumbling. So PHA is an interesting material. There are four companies in the U.S. that make PHA, and what we have found is that if you if you put this, if it gets lost in the environment, it degrades. If it's thin enough, like a thin film, it can degrade the same rate as a banana peel or apple core. So I as a viable alternative to take away some of the thin film packaging, not using a technical material, which are all the other plastics, and replacing with PHA. But I say this because I'm excited about PHA. But to step back, what I'd much rather see are the reuse systems. There are a lot of zero-waste city models where, where you can eliminate the packaging altogether. Refill stations. We were in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, and I saw some of those amazing refill stores um, in Cape Town. And you're seeing them all across uh, the U.S. as well, uh, these refill stations that are working. I know in Southeast Asia, there are great models for zero-waste facilities where all waste gets brought to a very small village scale, a very localized uh, MRF, if you will. And the sorting is so good. Uh, an example I'm using is the uh, uh, Mother Earth Foundation uh, in the Philippines. They get so good at sorting. What had been a pile of trash burning in the corner of a village gets sorted. All the biodegradables get composted. The market uh, value recyclables get recycled. What's left the residuals? They got it down from uh, what was 100% getting burned or buried or washed out to the environment down to 22% residuals. And that, you know, look at those products and you say, do we need these sachet packets or these disposable diapers? So when we're looking at these local systems that are really exciting for, for reuse, for um, um, ways of delivering goods without packaging, and then there is some room for biomaterials for thin film packaging. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Ecojustice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. We are here with Claire Arkin from Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, Marcus Erickson of Five Gyres Institute, and Kang Baloko of Athens Services discussing the paradigm shift, reduction, recycling, and technology, which is part six of our seven-part series on the plastic plague. Marcus, we've been speaking to, or you've been speaking to, uh, community resiliency and um how that fits into this new paradigm shift, this new model of how we need to tackle our waste issues. How do we get the populace uh, to shift the narrative from mainly focusing on 
a lot on waste, but then when we talk about zero waste, focusing on reduction as in limiting product use and reusing as in avoiding single use or repairing and repurposing to one that is holistically steeped in community resiliency. I think when you say holistically looking at resiliency, I think that's, that's where you have to start is the integration of all these, all these systems. I think, you know, cities are, are asking themselves and communities are asking themselves, what if, if we have to shut down trade and travel, if for some reason, whatever happens that, and that have a natural disaster, another pandemic, do we have the systems in place that we can meet our basic needs and survive and thrive? What we're seeing now, what this pandemic is showing us is how vulnerable our systems are. So how do you, how do you upend those systems and become much more locally resilient? And that means everything from, you know, your own food production, uh, food security, water security, energy, shipping to renewables, transportation, localizing transportation of goods, uh, less packaging. All these things fit when you, when you have a very localized society. So what does that mean for, for waste management? We talked about food production. It, it includes what you just mentioned, also repair and reuse, keeping all our materials within, within a closed system. Because that's what we live. What we live in. What I see the future is going to hold for us is we're going to have we're going to have to live with with less, or at least live within these very close systems where we are collecting materials, repurposing materials, repairing things. And you're seeing lots of these happen. You have lots of maker spaces, resilience hubs where you can bring. There's there are a few in Los Angeles. You can bring your appliances, and and a bunch of people hang around. They talk and they they fix things. So you're seeing these systems are, are, are growing by necessity. I think people are recognizing that they are a much better model than the vulnerabilities from relying on global systems to meet your basic needs. So I think that is driving the, this resilience movement, the idea to be self-sufficient. And when your community are all self-sufficient, you become a more resilient community. And you can weather um, the storms on the horizon in the, next, in the, in the years to come. And managing waste is one integral, integral part of that. And it sounds like through our community resiliency, we are trying to uh, not rely on businesses to lead the way when it comes to the paradigm shift. So is it possible, Claire, our, our Marcus, is it possible for brick and mortar companies, small and large, and the manufacturers of these products and of plastic to shift towards reduction and reuse models like extended producer responsibility or others and and or is this all the responsibility of the consumer? Well, it definitely should not be all on the consumer. Um, I think that there has been a narrative that has largely been pushed by industry to try to foist responsibility onto the consumer for plastic pollution. Like, oh, if we just put everything in the right bin, then it'll all be okay. And we know, um, you know, particularly for what we talked about earlier, that that, that is definitely not the case. And instead, I mean, Marcus has already mentioned there, there are so many really um, lively reuse systems that are already in play. And there are so many examples of, you know, just really getting back to basics. You know, we've, we've only had plastic for, you know, the past 50 years. But before, before that, we, we had all kinds of ways of <laughs> um, receiving and, and packaging um, our food and other kinds of goods. And, and they were really definitely um, centered around localized systems as well. So a lot of it is really just sort of getting back to getting back to basics, getting back to the, the simpler and more 
yeah, more effective and, and healthier ways of, of living locally and, and investing in, um, in resilient local economies. Our big challenge is, is trying to upend the, the, the business models of planned obsolescence is that you have these extracted industries and, and, and manufacturing that make things and that exist in a very linear system from, from, from extraction, production, consumption, and become, they become waste. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be difficult for us to, to upend those. If, if you look at the, the, the fossil fuel industries that make uh, energy and the chemistry, the chemistry of plastics, they, they look at multiple um, decades ahead, how they maintain demand through 2030, 2040, 2050. Uh, right now, you see this, 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 this tremendous growth in demand, and it's coupled with population growth and a, a rising middle class. But as those, as those curves begin to flatten, by 2050, as population density begins to flatten, and in the middle class, uh, everyone is, has a much higher standard of living, what's going to drive demand for, for, for more plastics to increase that, you know, those projected increases? I think industry is looking at the, uh, the incineration to destroy the molecule so that there is a demand to make more. As those other, uh, those other, other demands for population and the rising middle class begin to taper off, they need to, uh, to, to incinerate it to keep demand going. So to upend that is, I think that is our challenge. That's our biggest foe is, is to, to drive resilience, is to upend those linear models. King, there's a, also a huge issue around contamination. Contamination meaning products that are not able to be recycled due to its product type, not just contamination from food and things of that nature, but the actual package. What is the role of manufacturers and brands in order to avoid any design pitfalls that come with the inability to process their products? So, yeah, that's correct. Contamination is a problem. Sometimes containers will come through the lines that are a combination of different grades of material. For example, PT containers can be wrapped with PVC, band, PVC bands. We definitely encourage product designers to use a single grade when making our product. We simply don't have the manpower or ability to, to remove every piece of contamination. When products are overly contaminated, they get rejected or downgraded by our buyers. So we have welcomed many product designers to our MERV so they can understand our process, equipment, and have an understanding of how commodities are captured by our system in hopes that they can design products that are easier to recycle. And that would be great, um, actually working in tandem with each other to make sure that we're creating products uh, within our system that can be, uh, be controlled and processed by our system, whether that is to be able to be composted and go back into the ground, and when that's not an option, that those items can truly be recycled. Another point of interest right now, usually our, we try to make our shows evergreen, so that it's not specific to a time nor date, but right now we are all on the phone recording this episode because each one of us is in our own house due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We're experiencing an unprecedented time in global history. There has, at this time, um, 
within our own waste conversation, there has been some pushback from the industry, the oil, plastics manufacturing, and other cities with uh, concerns regarding zero waste practices. How do the topics we have discussed provide solutions in a time like this rather than working in opposition as the plastics industry and other interests would like us to believe that zero waste doesn't work in a, in a time of pandemic? I think I, I would start with, you know, uh, industry, we saw them very quickly take advantage of, uh, of I think, public fear to, to say reusables were, were a, a hazard, a public hazard. And it couldn't be any further from the truth. The last thing I would want to see are, you know, single-use plastics still being used during a pandemic where people are putting their, their mouths on cups and straws and seeing garbage cans piled full of, full of those single-use plastics. That becomes a, a vector for, for contamination. So we are seeing, you know, industry using this opportunity to, to try to undermine some of the, the policies we have passed to, to, to stop the folks seeing use plastics. But, but I think the, what the science tells us, there's one paper came out recently saying that, that COVID-19 can live on plastics up to three days. For me, it's an argument to even, even more quickly eliminate some single use plastics from public use. And even in the ordinance that came out in San, well, San Francisco is a part of a bunch of public um, departments uh, public health departments that came out, worked together and said, this is the type of ordinance that we're going to put out. And within that ordinance, there's a section called measures to prevent unnecessary contact. And that's where they say right now until May, you're not able to use reusable bags or reusable coffee mugs. But within that same category, they banned food bars, which is salsa, salad, coffee, uh, disposable coffee setups. They banned touch screens at checkout registers and then other disposable freebies as well, like lids and stir sticks. So do reusables now and in the future introduce a greater risk of contamination? Because are these items too going to be banned? Because they're in the same category. That's true. I, I, I can't imagine eliminating touch screens. You know, they're all around us. So I, I think that argument is a false argument that we should be eliminating reusables from, from society. You just, you just wash them. It's very simple to wash your bags and wash your cup. Wash your, your, your cloth bags like you wash your socks. So I, I think it's a, it's a false argument used for PR rather than uh, anything backed by science. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, um, I, I think this is really a way for, um, you know, the plastic industry to, to capitalize on, on COVID-19 to push for more plastic reduction. And it's, it's interesting because as the economy continues to take a big hit and, and major indexes are down 30%, fossil fuels are down considerably more. And in fact, BP and Exxon are down 50 to 70%, according to the Financial Times. So, you know, the market has already really decided fossil fuel state and to some degree disposable plastics. And so if there were ever a time to question, you know, the veracity of the plastics and fossil and fuel industries claims it's really now while they're trying desperately to really hold on to the market. And as, as Mark has said, you know, simple soap and water are effective at killing the coronavirus. When in, you know, in fact, when you think about single-use plastics, you know, all there's a whole chain of people who are handling, you know, the, the plastic and then, of course, the plastic waste afterwards. And, you know, we... 
uh, at Gaia are thinking a lot about um, the, the health and safety of sanitary workers who are really out there on the front lines of this crisis, who are performing the essential work of, of collecting and sorting our waste and, you know, oftentimes are, are not giving the kind of protective gear and, and the kind of um, social safety net that they need to be able to stay safe and for their families to stay safe. Uh, and so, you know, when you think about it, it's not just one straw that saved one person from getting coronavirus. And in fact, you're, you're passing that straw along, um, that contaminated straw is going to, you know, uh, have to be dealt with by a myriad of other people down the line. And whereas putting a, say a cup in a dishwasher is like a really effective way to clean that cup from the coronavirus and, and be able to use again and, and not sort of abet this extractive economy that we've seen just doesn't work. And I want to point out, too, that, you know, people who use purses or backpacks walking into stores, that bag, that credit card, that money that they are handling has been handled many more times over in the course of a day than their reusables have at the time that they try to use it in order to save on uh, single-use disposables. And those those items, those other items that they're touching more often stand a higher chance of passing along a, a virus than do a single-use disposable. And also, I know with App and Services, they're not shutting, some places are shutting down all of their waste processing. With Athens, they um, are limiting some of that, but then with their materials recovery facilities, those high-tech facilities that we talked about are able to process a lot of stuff mechanically. So they're able to um, at least continue processing things that don't need human capacity uh, to actually touch the waste, to um, pull out the stuff uh, that we call it like a, a negative store, pull out the stuff that's not supposed to be in there. In addition to all that we have spoke about today, I have two quick last questions here. What is your response when people ask, what can they do to help to reduce waste and move towards zero waste-based solutions? That's the first one. And then giving information about your efforts, your organization, and, and how people can get more resources. We'll start with Marcus. I think advice, I, I just tell people to get organized, to get involved, to get organized. It's, it's, it's very easy to find organizations that would love your time, would love your, your, your contribution of any kind uh, to get involved. You will find a lot of people that think the same way you do about how we can become stronger cities, less, less wasteful, and reduce the, the, the blight of trash in our neighborhoods. Um, to learn more about five gyres, we're, we're, we're really shifting to taking ocean, our ocean trash knowledge and looking at preventative solutions far, far at the beginning, at looking at, at, um, at zero-waste uh, schools, looking at zero-waste systems, uh, working more closely with break-free from plastic. So I think if you look at fivegyres.org, you'll see where we are. But we're really part of a larger movement of break-free from plastic, looking to end the legacy of waste in our communities. And Claire, what is your, your answer to the question and where do people get more information? Yeah, so um, I would say, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, find out where your waste goes. Um, you know, I think often we just kind of put our garbage and recycling in the bin and we put it out to the curb and we kind of forget about it. And so, you know, once we really start to understand you know, what this entire system is and what it represents and who's being impacted, um, then it, it really um, helps to shine a light on how, how we need to change. 
and and we change by um, by building local zero waste solutions. And um, you know, I would encourage folks to um, you know find out whether there are uh, efforts already underway in your community to you know build local policies and, and practices and systems um, towards zero waste. And and then also, I would say you know thank your sanitary workers. Um, Thank the, the folks at the checkout at your local grocery store uh, at a distance, of course. <laughs> um, and and then uh, in order for, yeah, so if people want to find some more information, um, they can visit our website, no-burn.org, as well as we have a, a microsite that features all kinds of stories about zero-waste solutions all over the world. And you can find that at zerowasteworld.org. And Ken? Um, as consumers, um, stay up to date and educated on what is recyclable and what is not because things are constantly changing. And that definitely will help us reduce contamination. Um, purchase products that are environmentally friendly and easy to recycle and try to reduce the amount of packaging and plastic that you use and possible. Always look for alternatives. And for more information about our company, you can check us out at www.appinservices.com. And another website where you can stay up to date on news on waste and recycling, waste360.com is a pretty good source. Thank you, everyone, for being on the show. This has been extremely informative. Thank you so much for having us on. That was fun. Thank you. Thank you to our guest today, Claire Arkin from Gaia, Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, Marcus Erickson of Five Gyres Institute, and Kang Baloko of Athens Services. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. And a special thank you to Story of Stuff. This has been Part 6, The Paradigm Shift, Reduction, Recycling, and Technology of our seven-part series on the Plastic Plague. We look forward to bringing you, our listeners, the series and hearing what you think. Again, let's start a dialogue. Visit us on social media, EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. And if you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, subscribe to the podcast and share the episodes. You have been listening to EcoJustice Radio, recorded at KPFK Los Angeles, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morse, executive producer Jack Eit, Plastic Plague Series producer Georgia Tunioli, engineer Blake Lampkin, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge, myself from Adventures in Waste, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.